Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. So I hope everyone is uh, happy and healthy on this beautiful winter afternoon. Friends of the pod who are uh, avid listeners, first, I appreciate each and every one of you, um, but you've likely noticed a, a sepsis theme or a sepsis trend in our last uh, few episodes. We're closing out our sepsis discussions for the time being here with uh, with a really good one. Um, now, before we before we talk today, um, quick reminder for any student, resident, or fellow who is interested in coming on the podcast you uh, you like you like what we do here. I'm looking for guest hosts for the uh, 2022 literature review series. So, go to my Twitter page at pharmacy to dose to to dose and fill out a small form. I promise it's easy. Send a quick, and then the the next step is to send a sick a quick. 60 to 90 second video or audio clip just explaining why you want to be on the pod you know it's an audio format so just to kind of get a feel for for how you're you are in this setting but that's it no cvs no letters of intent no references so um hopefully a change of pace at, during a residency and application season so the Surviving Sepsis Campaign released their 2021 update in October, and I'm so lucky to be joined by two ladies who need no introduction, but they're going to get one anyway, Carolyn McGee-Bell and Brittany Bissell. Now we're going to talk about the guidelines, and we're going to go, we're kind of going to kind of talk about what we like, what we dislike, and hopes for future updates. So we're going to kind of dig into the guidelines and give you some of the nitty gritties here. So Carolyn McGee-Bell is the medical surgical ICU clinical pharmacy specialist at the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. She received her BS in pharmaceutical science from the University of Kansas and her PharmD from the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy. Looks like rock chalk here. She completed her PGY-1 pharmacy residency and PGY-2 critical care pharmacy residency at the University of Kentucky Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky. Carolyn Preception serves as an advisor for many of the 35 residents at MUSC and her Twitter handle, FYI, is at CMcGeePharmD. Our other guest, Brittany Bissell, is the clinical pharmacist at the University of Kentucky in the Medical Intensive Care Unit. She received her doctor of pharmacy degree from Midwestern University and completed her PGY2 critical care specialty residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida. Brittany's also the assistant program director for the PGY2 critical care pharmacy residency program at the University of Kentucky. She's also on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at BissellBrittany. And I'm so excited to discuss the guidelines and really hear what these two uh, like and dislike about the update. So Brittany and Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the pod. How are you both doing today? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Doing great. Thanks, Nick. Now, I know I'm talking to two Peloton enthusiasts here. So how competitive are you both on the bike? Like, Carolyn, do you all like have competitions? Is there any type of rivalry, anything? Or is this, uh, is this more just something for leisure? No, no rivalries. Mostly because I know that Brittany would crush me. She's a beast. So um, most of the time when I'm uh, on the Peloton, I like to do boot camps and strength classes and uh, just try and compete with myself, I guess. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm trying to compete with myself most of the time. Um, I do a lot of power zone training. So you like establish your baseline and, and try to go from there, which I've had to reestablish my baseline quite a few times after giving up a, for a couple of seasons. So definitely agree. Now, I feel like it's just a super um, supportive environment. Like shout out hashtag uh, men Twitter uh, <laughs> um, Peloton Peloton group. But no, um, definitely competing with myself. But I don't I don't think we get too many rivalries in, in the Peloton world. All right, I like that. It's uh, a little a little friendly action there. Um, okay, there's so much good stuff here. I think we need to just kind of ride on into our episode here, pun intended. Um, so the Surviving Sepsis campaign, they released their 2021 update to the guidelines this past October. Now, we're going we're gonna to cover more of the individual thoughts later in the episode, but what are both of like your feelings or like general thoughts regarding this update? Carolyn, let's kind of start with you and what your overall thoughts were. Yeah, I think, you know, there were a lot of updates in these 2021 guidelines compared to 2016. Um, and one of the things that I really liked is that there's actually a table that summarizes all of the changes from 2016 to 2021. Um, so you don't really have to go digging for what's different between the two. Um, you know, some of the changes I really liked and then some of them I thought were kind of just mainly based on expert opinion because there's not a lot of um, evidence to guide us in certain areas. Brittany, what yeah, about you? I know for me, so for me, I feel like, um, you know, to, I feel like I need full disclosure right off the get go as someone who probably has some like borderline trust issues with the sepsis guidelines, <laughs> just natural, um, I'm a natural pessimist when it comes to guidelines. This was actually, um, I was actually, positively surprised um, with the guidelines this year. I definitely felt like um, there was some movement in the right direction. Again, still a lot of, you know, expert data, not a, not a ton, not, a lot of expert opinion with not a lot of data, I guess I should say, um, that, that it's relying on. But I feel like there was some more holistic discussions in there that I, I really enjoyed and, and thought it was a, a move in the right direction for sure. Let's dig a little deeper here, Brittany. One, you know, one of the things you just said was that it was um, not really a lot of high quality data and the recommendations were kind of more anecdotal or, or based on expert opinion. I think you kind of hinted at this, but is this like a change for the 2021 sepsis guidelines or is this a criticism that has remained um, from the first iteration of these guidelines? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that is something that has definitely been real throughout the guidelines really since, you know, the initial um, rendition of the surviving sepsis guidelines. I think there's, you know, just a lot of anyone that's listening to this podcast, there's a lot of limitations to the sepsis diagnosis in itself and the spectrum of sepsis and, and how we study sepsis can be pretty difficult and ever changing. But for me, you know, as someone who's really dug back to the first ever surviving sepsis guidelines and really watched the um, evolvement over time or how we've evolved over time, I think it's important to understand that there was a pretty rocky foundation, at least in my opinion, in which the surviving sepsis guidelines really started on. Um, anyone listening to this podcast, I'm sure, is well aware of um, early goal-directed therapy and the foundation of early goal-directed therapy in the 2001 New England Journal publication um, that really, in my mind, set the standard in the beginning of what became sepsis guidance. And now anyone that is familiar with that study knows of the numerous different discussions that have 
evolved from the methodology of that study and the limitations of the methods of that study, you know, single center, unblinded, pretty small sample size. And something that today's standards, I know, you know, if we were to have a resident or this was to be published, you know, today in 2022, I would have some preceptors probably, um, you know, judge me a little bit for letting the resident even and do a journal club on that. So definitely some limitations from the methods of the initial early goal directed therapy publication. And there was a lot of controversy that arose from conflicts of interest and relationships, the investigators of that study, um, the use of the Edwards Life Science uh, device, the first ever use in a clinical trial, a lot of ongoing discussions about patent rights of that device and how those evolved before and after publication of the study. So again, controversy in that initial study. And then once that study was published, we saw even more controversy really come to light. There was a medical resident at the institution that had made complaints to hospital officials. We saw media attention really given to this aspect. Um, and we also saw media attention given to um, reanalysis of the data, hospital statisticians reevaluating the study, reevaluating the data set and finding different clinical results than what we saw in the original publication. So again, not to, you know, make any, you know, slides at, at, at that study. I definitely think that has become the foundation of how we've evolved sepsis care. But I think it's important to, to know and always keep in mind that there was a lot of controversy with that initial study. And that study quickly became the foundation for the first ever surviving sepsis guidelines, which unfortunately really compounded the controversy. So if you look at the first ever convention um, of the development of surviving sepsis guidelines, there was conflict of interest and authorship there. So fees and research um, grant support that was given from pharmaceutical or medical companies, um, you know, just over three quarters of a million dollars um, that was given to funding the meetings in themselves. Um, Eli Lilly was an, another organization that had paid um, some money for the meetings of where the surviving sepsis um, guidelines really came from, which is important, especially for those of you who may not um, even know of activated protein C, but that was the company that had developed activated protein C, which remained in the guidelines, even when its use was still pretty controversial. So I think, again, these are all just probably minor points, but when you start to combine all of these points, so all of this potential area of controversy on top of a guideline that relies heavily on the judgment of the clinicians on the guideline panel. Um, I think red flags probably raise for most, especially when the guidelines over time have continued to evolve in a way that really moves judgment away from the bedside clinicians, you know, increasing the strictness of the numbers and timeframes and so forth. And so I've been extremely long-winded, so I'm sorry, Nick, but there's, you know, <laughs> definitely been some controversy. We've always had these inherent limitations with the data of what sepsis is. And so I wouldn't say, it's by any means new. I think we're just really continuing to evolve from the foundation of, of what these guidelines were from the get-go. Give us the tea, Brittany. That's why we're here. I love that. Um, it, it hurts me a little bit, Eli Lilly being in there as the Indianapolis Foundation, but you're absolutely right. Activated Protein C, uh, better known as Zygris. I think if there's some of our older colleagues who are listening, they just shuddered thinking about all the restrictions and dosing that they had to do with all of that um, back in the day when we thought that that, that, that actually helped. Yeah, understanding, um, despite it's, there may be positive momentum, right, with with some of the big changes with sepsis, it uh, might not have been on the most um, great foundation per se. Um, so we're going to stick with some controversy here. Um, 
in 2016, the sepsis three um, update of the guidelines came out. And I remember being at SECM, the annual Congress, when this came out and the the addition of QSOFA um, really kind of shook heads at the time. So, Carolyn, how did the 2021 version address the use of QSOFA in patients with uh, sepsis and septic shock? Yeah, so this was a big change from the 2016 guidelines. And the 2021 guidelines, they recommend against QSOFA compared to SIRS, NEWS, and MUSE, which are other um, screening tools for sepsis and septic shock. And I remember being at that 2016 Congress as well, and it was kind of a big deal when they put QSOFA into these guidelines. Mm-hmm. They had you know, all these articles that were released at Congress and presented for the first time there. Um, and so for those of you who aren't familiar, QSOFA, um, you have to have two of the three um, to have previously been, you know, positive for uh, a positive screening for sepsis. That was, you know, GCS less than 15, respiratory rate greater than 22, and systolic blood pressure less than 100 millimeters of mercury. So the third international consensus conference um, on the definitions of sepsis identified QSOFA as a predictor of patients who would have poor outcomes um, with known or suspected infection. But there were really no analyses performed to support its use as a screening tool. Um, And now there's been a lot more studies that have been done looking at using it as a screening tool, um, and the results are really contradictory. Um, So it may be more specific, but it's a lot less sensitive than some of our other tools like SIRS, News, and Muse, which means we might have a lot of... um, we might have few false positives, but we might might not be identifying everybody that we should be. Um, so, kind of summary here: QSOF is out. We don't really know which screening tool to use, but we should be using one, and we should be evaluating our processes at our institution as we go along. The irony is they introduced that because of how, like, to increase the sensitivity compared to the SERS criteria. That was the whole reason they, they started it. And then it turns out that this is actually worse than, than the SERS criteria here. So uh, one step forward and two steps back has appeared uh, like where we did here. Um, now, when I, when I look at the guidelines, or honestly, at this point, any paper in general, I, I find myself looking at the authors and specifically like their credentials, figuring out, um, you know, what their, you know, multidisciplinary kind of involvement is. And, and this is an international guideline. So, Brittany, how did the writing team do in terms of like not only diversity, but I would say like getting a, a wide range of kind of multidisciplinary involvement and opinions? Yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. <laughs> um, I'm always looking at authorship and checking who's on the paper and who wrote what and mm-hmm. kind of where the, the different individuals come from. So I definitely um, did that with this guideline as well, of course. Um, you know, I think that there's definitely some diversity in the, um, the rendition of this guidelines. I would love to see a push to continue to diversify the guidelines. Um, you know, if you look at the authors that are provided, I think there's about 60, half are from U.S. or Canada, um, another quarter of, uh, of those individuals are from Europe or Australia. When you look at the different disciplines that they represent, a couple of pharmacists in there. Of course, mm-hmm. we have to mention those. Um, I think about three individuals from a nursing background, about a, a quarter of the, the group were, were women. And they do have a couple of infectious disease uh, physicians on there, which was definitely happy to see. So, yeah, there's definitely some diversity. I think they can continue 
to push that and amplify that and continue to build on the, on the diversity in, in that regard. You know, one of the things that I like the most about this version of the Surviving Sepsis um, campaign is almost every section in regards to recommendations talks about low resource settings or puts a discussion to low resource settings. And, and for me, in my opinion, I think, you know, where these guidelines are most applicable and, and can be used to the greatest extent are probably in those lower resource settings. And so I think the unfortunate part about this particular guideline is that while there's mention of low resource settings and applicability to those, unfortunately, a lot of the recommendations don't necessarily apply to low resource settings or may not apply to low resource settings. So I think continuing to diversify the panel and the guideline authorship will allow them to develop recommendations that may be more applicable to some of those lower resource settings and in consideration for, for other, um, other, other uh, hospital settings and, and so forth. Now, Brittany, just to clarify, when you when you kind of mean like the the lower income settings, are you kind of are you are you speaking about kind of like some rural settings in America, or are you thinking more like internationally to some of to some of our less fortunate or like more like third world kind of countries? I would say both, honestly. Um, I think so. For me, obviously, as someone I practice in Kentucky, and when I think about the surviving sepsis guidelines, you know. In an academic medical center, we aren't heavily reliant on the striving sepsis guidelines every day, right? You know, I think within academia, you're always trying to look at the most recent data, really kind of continue to push the envelope to advanced care. And so I was always raised and trained in, in the realm of, you know, guidelines are important for a foundation, but really they're more heavily used in some of our community, more rural settings. Now, obviously, that's applicable to, to rural Kentucky. Um, all of the patients that I'm getting transfers from um, on the day-to-day, -day, definitely I think it's important to have some type of guidance there just because they don't have, um, you know, the amount of resources that we may have in academic medical center. But I think it's also very important for some of the third world countries and some of the other countries that are, you know, they started talking about lower resource countries. They specifically pull out, you know, sub-Saharan African studies um, within, you know, the fluid um, aspect specifically and some of the early warning things. And so I think both, really. Um, some of those lower resource settings really across the globe are, are important to consider. Yeah. I mean, we're, we all three work at, at an academic medical center. Right. And so I, I know I, I definitely can, can, uh, I, I know some of the, uh, towns in Kentucky you're talking about, you know, I'm in Indiana, so we definitely get those. I'm sure, I'm sure Carolyn in South Carolina has some too. So that's a, a really good point, um, uh, to really highlight there. Okay. So we've gone broad. Let's let's kind of get into some into some more detailed discussion here with these guidelines. And I mean, to be honest here, how could we have Brittany Bissell on the fluid stewardship queen, the de-resuscitation princess on the podcast and not have a discussion on IV fluid recommendations? So I think there's plenty of things to to that that we disagree with or or maybe dislike, but let's start out positive here, Brittany. So what do you think is your favorite change in the 2021 guidelines as it relates to fluid? I mean, I think the obvious answer here is definitely the downgrade um, in regards to the specific initial resuscitation measure looking at 30 mLs per kilo of crystalloid. Um, they, you know, previously it was a strong recommendation, low quality of evidence, and now they've made it a weak um, recommendation, <laughs> low quality of evidence. That's probably my favorite part um, when it comes to the fluid resuscitation for sure. Carolyn, did anything stand out in, as in a positive light as it relates to fluids? Yeah, I think the 2021 
guidelines definitely gave more of a shout out to balanced crystalloids. So the old guidelines just suggested using balanced crystalloids or saline um, for fluid resuscitation, but the new guidelines actually suggest using balanced crystalloids instead of normal saline. Um, and all of that is based off of, you know, this plethora of data that have come out since those 2016 guidelines, namely like SPLIT and SMART and SALT and all those wonderful trials coming from the Vanderbilt group. Um, and the, the sepsis guidelines this time around look at this network meta-analysis of 14 RCTs um, that showed an indirect comparison that um, balanced crystalloids were associated with a decrease in mortality compared to saline. So definitely more of a, a push for balanced crystalloids um, to hopefully decrease hyperchloremia, AKI, maybe even mortality. Um, so bye-bye saline. <laughs> I'm going to nitpick here. I don't like that it says suggest. Like, don't we have enough things here that we can kind of increase like the recommendation here? You know, maybe by 2031, we'll get the, we'll get the positive move uh, for that direction that, that we're hoping to see. Um, now, one, one can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> now, based on research, I think a lot has come out in the last five years or so. And I think, you know, we've become we have become a lot more progressive with, with IV fluids, specifically understanding, right, all the things that can happen with a positive fluid balance, the harm that can come, prolong their ICU and hospital length of stay. So, Brittany, did, did the guideline authors modify or make any what you would consider like meaningful change to any of their other recommendations as it relates to uh, fluids and sepsis? Yeah, so they did and they didn't. Um, a little bit of both. So the 30, I think, you know, I mentioned before, the 30 ml per kilo sepsis-induced hypoperfusion remains. It's still there. Um still on the basis of, of some observational data with a weakened recommendation. Um, I think it's important that, of course, I'm going to go on a mini tangent here. I'll try to keep my time. I think it's important to note that that has really hung around since the 2013 rendition of the guidelines. Um, there wasn't a lot of strong data to support it at that time. And I think now it's one of those, those things that it's almost like we've continued to recommend it and no evidence has told us not really to do it yet. So we're just going to keep hanging around <laughs> to that. And that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where we stand with 30 ml per kilo. So again, not a lot of strong data um, to support, but it definitely continues just a weaker recommendation at this time. Um, they do talk about dynamic fluid measures um, and the consideration for dynamic fluid measures um, in regards to resuscitation, which I definitely appreciate. Um, it's, they, they, they suggest using the, the word you, you don't love, Nick, but they suggest using them again, another weak, low quality of evidence, very low quality of evidence recommendation. Um, I agree with this personally. I think there's a lot of discussion, um, about dynamic measurements and how we guide fluid resuscitation. And I definitely think there's probably enough data to show us that we should be using those over static parameters. I don't think there's a lot of data that tell us how impactful using these dynamic measures really is clinically. So the authors cite a couple of meta-analyses that have been performed. One showed a potential benefit, one didn't show a potential benefit. I think it's important to remember the pooling of this data is all based on observational studies. We have a ton of limitations to most of our dynamic measures that we're using. Um, in regards to, you know, vent settings, what the patient um, looks like from a cardiac standpoint and so forth. So 
again, I definitely agree with this recommendations. I, I would agree with the recommendation strength and quality of evidence that they gave it, um, but definitely consideration for dynamic um, measures over potential alternatives. Um, and they also talk about a little bit later uh, in, the, in the documents, they specifically mention um, restrictive versus liberal fluid strategies in the first 24 hours, which um, there's really insufficient evidence at the author site, and I would totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, I think, one study that's come out and looked at fluid restriction specifically with that term. Um, and unfortunately, that study looked at a 72-hour period, which I just think is unfortunately not as clinically pertinent to us. Most of us know about 72 hours we should be targeting that even isn't negative. So really waiting on the results of the Clover's trial to dig too far into that, I think. I think probably, hopefully, um, with the next guideline, we'll get more information about how liberal or conservative we are with fluid management after that initial resuscitation. Um, but definitely mentioned just not enough evidence really at this time for for them to steer us one way or another. You know, that has to, as someone who's involved with so much research, it it has to hurt a little bit knowing that this is such an anecdotal or practice-based recommendation like we've always done it so we'll just continue to do it when it feels like the whole push is us trying to move away from that in all aspects of medicine um it seems like we're trying to hold on to the past here you said it not me (laughs) (laughs) now the the guidelines have have kind of always been vague as it relates to albumin recommendations. Ugh, it I, it is uh, frustrating to all of us on the day to day trying to limit our albumin use here. Did the update make any of our lives easier, Carolyn, on the front lines here as it relates to albumin and sepsis? No, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is one of those other things that they're kind of uh, holding on here. But the simple way of putting it, no. Um, they still, you know, they use albumin for patients that have um, gotten large volume of crystalloids or considerate. And I think, you know, like Albion had almost 2,000 patients. Like that's a big trial for critical care. Like we have systematic reviews that have almost 13,000 patients that show no difference in mortality or need for renal replacement therapy. So I feel like this is one of those things that like has kind of stuck around just because like when patients aren't doing well, we like want to do something. And I feel like albumin feels like that's something that we can maybe do sometimes. Um, I mean, there's certain circumstances where it makes sense. Like if your patient has SDP, sure, give them some albumin. <laughs> um, but in a lot of these other scenarios, like what is large volume? We're all waiting on that. Large volume? Yeah, I, I wish they gave us a little bit more guidance here. But I feel like this is kind of one of those things that's just um, hung around and hasn't really changed from previously. Albumin and sepsis, tail as old as time. I guess that means we're going to get another decade of more of more of our research money looking at albumin and sepsis in these large in these large studies. Um, so as our as our patients progress from uh, sepsis to septic shock here, let's kind of discuss how the guidelines address the use of of vasopressors to help get our MAP goal going here. So, Carolyn, did this section leave you wanting more in terms of non norepinephrine recommendations? Yeah, so um, vasopressin kind of snuck in here as the recommended second-line vasopressor. Um, Previously, the guidelines had said epi or vaso. Um, And this is really all kind of based on theory. Um, So if you're using a lot of norepinephrine and you're 
um, alpha-1 receptors are already saturated and down-regulated, then it kind of makes sense that, you know, adding something like FE that's going to target those same receptors may have limited utility. So that's kind of how vasopressin and non-catecholamine vasopressors snuck in here. Um, and Vax and Vanish both did show catecholamine sparing effects of vasopressin, but they didn't really give us a lot to go on here. Like, when do I start vasopressin? Why, why vasopressin? I mean, there's this theory, but there's no data comparing second line vasopressors. Um, so I think this is one of those things where they, they kind of talk about, yeah, use vaso. And here's maybe when we would use it. Um, which I also think is interesting because you know, they mention this, um, subgroup analysis in the Vanish trial where patients with like less severe septic shock receiving less than 15 um, mics per minute of norepinephrine had improved survival with the addition of vasopressin. But then they give these little remarks, which I also think is interesting. This is where this expert opinion comes in. It's that their remark is, in our practice, vasopressin is usually started when the dose of norepinephrine is in the range of 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute, which is kind of loosely based on the Vanish trial. But like, where's the data? And And why are you telling us that like, it maybe was helpful in patients that were only on 15 mics per minute, but in our practice, we start at 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. Are your patients like 40 kilos? Because mine aren't. <laughs> yes, uh, 140 uh, more likely than 40. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, they forgot some numbers. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, and that's a big range, 0.25 to 0.5. Um, I, I have, a, I mean, it's, it plays out. There's so many things in medicine that in theory makes sense, right? Physiologically, we think it makes sense. And then when we actually study it, it doesn't have the fruition that we think mechanistically it should have. Um, I also, why are we still recommending dopamine? Like, where are we with this? Who, does anyone still use dopamine outside of, I mean, maybe bradycardia or if you're, if you're just needing to start something after a code and you're grabbing it from a code cart. To me, those are the, the only two times I can think of it. So... Yeah, a lot to be left from our second line uh, vasopressor kind of management here. Now, what are your thoughts on the guidelines suggesting peripheral vasopressor use um, kind of rather than delaying starting pressors until you get central IV access? Yeah, this is the first time that they've ever really mentioned um, starting vasopressors peripherally. Um, and I feel like they kind of added this because like, this is what most people are doing. You know, we mm -hmm. know that starting vasopressors quickly um, restores blood pressure. And that's like, you know, an integral component in managing septic shock. Um, vasopressors are traditionally given through a central line, but we know it takes time to get that central line placed. It takes someone that has training in order to place a central line. Um, and so, um, you know, most places are starting this peripherally for shorter periods of time. Um, and this is all pretty much based on observational data that has shown mm -hmm. that, you know, there's low rates of extravasation, low rates of necrosis and limb ischemia. Um, and, you know, these observational studies that have looked at extravasation haven't really seen any long-term sequelae. Um, so they say, you know, give peripheral vasopressors until you can get central access. And they go on to kind of say less than six hours is 
less likely to cause tissue injury. Um, and then the location of the peripheral line um, can also maybe be helpful. But again, these studies are often observational, majority of retrospective. Um, so I'd really love to see some more data here in the future. Yeah, I wish they would give recommendations. You know, when you actually look at some of those studies, a lot of them don't give a whole lot of guidance as to what gauge the IV was, where it was actually located. And to me, I feel like as someone who has to get them started in the ED a lot, that feels like something that I'm more worried about is what type of IV and where it is rather than how long I think it's going to be on. Because if it's a good IV and doing it for more than six hours is probably okay in my opinion. Yeah, I think it leaves a lot of us to like make our own institutional recommendations on what we maybe think would be best. So, you know, larger bore is probably better having it be, you know, not in a hand or a foot um, <laughs> yep. and, you know, lower doses, shorter durations of time. But we don't really know a lot of the specifics on what actually is best. It's, it's kind of like the author saying, OK, we we see what you're we see what America is doing and the world is doing here continue on. We, we accept and, and you can keep doing what you're doing here. So I would argue one of the biggest positive changes to the 2021 guidelines is the uh, modification of time to antibiotic administration, finally differentiating between sepsis and septic shock. So Carolyn, are, describe the change for us and are you as happy about this as I am and probably all of our ID colleagues are as well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, with previous versions of the guidelines, it's kind of like lumped everyone together. Like people need antibiotics within an hour of having sepsis. Um, and after that Kumar study came out in like early 2000s, I think we were really good at emphasizing the importance of early antibiotics. Like early antibiotics decreases mortality. Um, but these guidelines actually kind of differentiated between patients with septic shock patients that are high risk for sepsis, needing early antibiotics within that first one hour, and then patients that have possible sepsis, kind of giving you a moment to like get your ducks in a row and figure out, oh, let me do a little bit more digging. Do I actually need to give antibiotics to this patient or is there a non-infectious cause that could maybe explain why this patient is presenting this way? Um, and then they recommend after doing a little bit of exploration and digging, if you can't find a non-infectious cause to explain what's going on, then starting antibiotics within three hours. And then also just deferring antibiotics in patients that have a low possibility of sepsis. Um, and a lot of this is just based on, I think, too many people get broad-spectrum antibiotics. It's the, the knee-jerk reaction to just give thanks Pipkazo to everyone that comes into the ICU. Um, so there's been some studies that have been done that look at, you know, patients that have shock versus severe sepsis versus sepsis. And there's this strong association between time to antibiotics and death in patients that have septic shock, but then a weaker association in patients that don't have septic shock. Um, and then we really just need to balance the importance of giving early antibiotics with the potential harms associated with administering unnecessary antibiotics, which you know, as pharmacists, we're, we're, we're very well aware of harms from antibiotics like allergic reactions, AKI, thrombocytopenia, C. diff, and I think most importantly, antimicrobial resistance. So I think these guidelines finally kind of say, like, 
hold on, let's take a second, try and figure out what's going on, and fight the urge to start Vanxipase on every single patient that comes into the ICU. That's so funny you mentioned that. What I was going to ask you is, wait, Carolyn, are you saying that vancomycin is not the answer for everyone that comes in meeting two of the four SERS criteria? I, how is that possible? Yeah, it doesn't cure COVID. I can tell you that much. Uh, it, we've certainly tried. Well, we've we've given yeah. it our best effort. <laughs> now, Brittany, I, the, the the guidelines finally listened to all the pharmacists who have been who have been arguing this for for years, and they suggest using shorter compared to a longer duration of antimicrobial therapy. So, I think my question with this is, why do you think this took so long? to be a guideline recommended intervention when like a lot of those studies that they reference is, you know, the have been, you know, over a decade old. I mean, my personal opinion on this is probably <laughs> multifactorial. Um, I think one, I think in critical care for the last, you know, few decades, we've been so focused on mortality as an outcome. And I think, we've moved in a direction over the last, you know, five to 10 years or so where we've started to recognize that while mortality is an important outcome, there are other important interventions as well. And there are other important outcomes. So I think, you know, beyond just this, like, okay, antibiotics save lives, antibiotics for everyone in sepsis. I think we've naturally started to look outside of, you know, what matters beyond mortality, such as antibiotic resistance, talking about quality of life after ICU discharge, talking about hospital readmissions and so forth. So I think one aspect is just, I think finally in critical care, we're moving beyond just solely mortality and that initial life or death as, as, as how we're viewing patient outcomes and quality care. I think the other big important factor in my mind is that, you know, the last rendition of the guidelines, the IDSA did come out specifically and not endorse those um, guidelines. I think probably... You know, I encourage everyone listening to go read their their paper on, on specifics. But, you know, really a lot of that really came down to overzealous use of antibiotics, as Carolyn was kind of talking about with that, you know, really throwing those on before taking the time to think through the differential and think through it in those patients that we probably should. So I think, you know, that had to be somewhat of a driver as further discussion about appropriate antibiotic use and stewardship where pertinent. Um, with the most updated version, for sure. That makes sense. I mean, when you have to, when you, when you, they reference ten different studies here as as evidence to why we can use a shorter duration in pneumonia. So I, I agree with your sentiment that multifactorial is 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 uh, likely one of the one of the issues here. Um, so, you know, Caroline, kind of coming back to you, and we were talking about differentiating, you know, sepsis and septic shock. So. I think nothing is more frustrating than, uh, you know, dosing vancomycin and piptazo in a patient with zero risk factors for drug resistance, but they meet our SERS criteria. So we have to use all of our broad spectrum antibiotics in this hemodynamically stable patient with sepsis. So Carolyn, do the guidelines address these types of scenarios with, with what type of cover empiric coverage we need to be doing from an antimicrobial perspective? Yeah, so again, I think they finally kind of help us to like individualize care for these patients instead of just pulling that bank and trigger on everybody. And they recommend not covering MRSA in patients that don't have risk factors for it. 
um, which is, you know, not a new concept. Like, this is kind of like the pneumonia guidelines. You know, they got rid of HCAP and changed it to CAP with risk factors for MRSA or CAP with risk factors for pseudomonas. And a lot of the reason behind why they did that is because there were so many people that were getting unnecessary anti-MRSA and anti-pseudomonal coverage. Um, so specifically when it comes to not covering everyone for MRSA, I mean, this makes sense because the incidence of MRSA varies based on regions in the U.S., based on, you know, global regions. So the incidence is going to be much higher in the U.S. for MRSA than it is in Western Europe. You also need to think about patient-specific characteristics. So like the folks that are going to be at risk for MRSA are people that have previously had MRSA, are colonized, have recently received antibiotics, have some sort of, you know, skin or wound infection, have a device, are on HD. Um, nothing irks me more than when I come in and it's like, well, this patient arrested at home, they have no hospital exposure, but I put them on magnesium. Like, why? They came from home. They don't need that. You say it louder for the audience in the back. You're absolutely right. That is, um, it's, it's, it's glad that we're finally making some positive changes here. Now we'll see how quickly this gets adopted at our, at our individual institutional level, but at least, at least we're making steps to, to get there. I think it just makes it okay for the intern that's like covering at night <laughs> to like take a moment and try and figure out what's going on instead of just like throwing stuff at these people. As someone who works overnight, truer words have not been spoken. I I, uh, feel that on a very real level here. Um, So sometimes guidelines can be frustratingly vague. And I I think the Surviving Sepsis campaign, they, it really was vague in how it talked about empiric broad spectrum coverage, specifically how we need to add antifungal um, coverage in previous iterations. So, Brittany, did did the authors help clear this up at all, or is it still? Uh, are we still in the vague waters? Uh, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> for me, you know, there's a lot of specificity provided, and that there's a ton of potential examples for risk factors for fungal infection, but it's still really not clear the level of risk when this needs to be considered um, and really the risk versus benefit in this. So the authors suggest empiric antifungal coverage in patients at high risk of fungal infection. And they do give a great table that lists a number of different risk factors, potential and <laughs> fungal infection. This is similar to the de-escalation table in that, you know, the vast majority of the studies that they've referenced are like 15 to 20 years old or their review articles. So, cause I like, as someone that practices in the medical ICU in Kentucky, most of my patients have one of these risk factors when they come into my unit. Like that is just, and so of course, the second I see this, I'm like, we are going to be starting antifungal coverage in every patient that comes into the ICU. And so I really tried to dig through these and look at these. And I think, unfortunately, there's just a limitation in, and a good solid risk stratification when it comes to specific fungal infections. I think some of the, 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 populations that are mentioned are obvious. And I think, again, it goes back to, we were probably already considering endemic yeast and invasive mold infections in some of these populations anyway. It's really the candida sepsis portion and the risk factors mm-hmm. they list there that I think is where it becomes gray. Immunosuppression, longer length of ICU stay, severity of illness, all of these things that, you know, 
are pretty subjective or not well quantified clinically at bedside that I think is difficult. You know, they mention in person to inject drugs. If you go and look at the study that they cite, you know, that's 10%. Like in that study, IV drug users were 10% of the patients that accepted. So it's just, it's very difficult for me because I, I think that it's a good attempt. I think it's, you know, an exhaustive list of potential populations to consider, but I don't think that every single one of the patients that present with one of these risk factors necessarily deserves empiric antifungal coverage. So I think good steps. I hope that we can maybe specify this more in the future and work more towards, you know, better quantification of, of what the true risk is in specific populations. My favorite and maybe least favorite is a better way to say this. The last one says prior surgery. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, I had my wisdom teeth taken out when I was 18. Do I need antifungal coverage when I come to the ICU? Yeah. Yeah. No. And for, for those who, who haven't seen these guidelines yet, it's, it's basically the table's broken up into three sections and it's like risk factors for candida sepsis endemic yeast and invasive mold. And Brittany, I completely agree. The risk factors for endemic yeast and invasive mold, I think those are things when we were considering starting them anyways. But I mean, prior surgery, acute renal failure, someone on broad spectrum antibiotics, persons who inject drugs. I mean, you're absolutely right. That's that's in a medical ICU, that's 80% of your patients at minimum of someone who's in sepsis who um, would would warrant and fall into that category. So hopefully a good starting point. Um, let's let's uh, hope that there's more to come here. The, the most ironic part for this for me is the broad spectrum antibiotic recommendation because, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics have now become our standard of care because of previous renditions <laughs> of the guidelines. So it's just like... It's, there's a lot of irony, I think, in this table alone, but, you know, still, still very interesting. They're trying. We'll, we'll, give them a, we'll give them a point for trying here, at least. We're, we're, we're getting a, they're, they're making efforts. So my, my personal, I would say maybe biased, I would say maybe unbiased based on the evidence, uh, update to the 2021 sepsis guidelines relates to the use of vitamin C in sepsis. So Carolyn, is the Wicked Witch dead? Or do we need to prepare ourselves? Are we adding vitamin C to the albumin pile where we're stuck listening to five to 10 more years of, of studies on these two things in sepsis? I really hope the Wicked Witch is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this popped up after a small 47 patient before after trial, like not even randomized controlled trial. And honestly, I've never really seen anything like it, like catch on like wildfire. Like, the media got involved. Like, we had patients coming in that were, like, requesting, like, patient yes. family members were requesting vitamin C, but it wasn't based off of great data. Um, but luckily, there's been a lot of randomized controlled trials, and I think some high-quality evidence that has come out since that time. And even some trials that have come out since the um, sepsis guidelines did their analysis. Um, so there's, there were some smaller trials initially that showed reduction in co-calcitonin and CRP and thrombomodulin and maybe a reduction in SOFA scores. Um, but now we have a lot of RCTs. We've got oranges, Victus, vitamins, Axe, Victor. I mean, there's <laughs> a bunch, any acronyms. There's, sometimes they really have to torture the, the title to come up with the acronym, but <laughs> we've got a lot of RCTs now. <laughs> 
Um, the Sexist Guidelines did an analysis of seven randomized control trials that had 416 patients. But even since then, vitamins came out that had 216, Axe had 205, Victus had 501 patients, um, which is like, you know, that one trial is like five times as many as there were in this initial before after trial. So I think now we have something like 12 trials that have looked at vitamin C, randomized controlled trials that have looked at vitamin C and sepsis, and 11 of them reported on mortality. Only two of them found a positive mortality benefit. Um, and one of those trials only had 14 patients in each group, and the other one looked specifically at ARDS and used a different dose in a lot of these trials. Um, but when you look at some of the largest randomized controls, like controlled trials like vitamins, which was done in Australia and New Zealand and Brazil, and you look at like Victus, which was done at multiple sites within the U.S., those trials weren't able to find a difference in ventilator-free or vasopressor-free days and no difference in 90-day mortality. Um, so initially, they maybe thought this helped with reduction in pro-inflammatory mediators, but when we look at, you know, a lot of our randomized control trials that are multi-center, we're not really seeing the benefit. And just to to add some some uh, gas to the fire here, just so that first study you mentioned the before after study that was that was Paul Merrick at a school in Virginia. And for those who don't know, Paul Merrick is no longer at that school in Virginia because he was so into pushing ivermectin and some of these other COVID therapies. So. Just so we're kind of pulling back the curtain on the the primary author and the person who was pushing this over and over, we're kind of seeing some of those true colors come out. And and you mentioned 12 RCTs. I would say we had about 12,000 retrospective studies at every conference we went to talking about the, the individual use at their institution. So I think we've, hopefully we finally put this matter to bed. Uh, I completely agree, but um, yes, a finally change for the good, I think. Now, sticking with some of our adjunctive treatments here, you know, our use of corticosteroids may change based on a new recommendation in these guidelines, but I think this reflects probably how most of us were using corticosteroids in practice to begin with. But Carolyn, what did you think about this recommendation change? Yeah, so the, the 2021 guidelines um, suggest against So they basically <laughs> they basically say to use corticosteroids in patients who have a um, still have a vasopressor requirement, um, and this is another place where they leave these remarks. Um, and so the remarks are the things that like I think this is where expert opinion maybe plays in a lot, and I'd really love to see some more data. So their remarks kind of say steroids should be started when the patient is on norepinephrine or epinephrine at greater than 0.25 mics per kilo per minute for at least four hours after initiation. And that's based off of the inclusion criteria from three trials that have come out since the um, 2016 guidelines. So the VANISH trial, APPROACHES, and ADRENAL. And, you know, those trials had some different results um, you know, one showed a difference in mortality and one different. It's not really clear why that happened other than maybe sicker patients in one trial than in another, or maybe it was because of using fludrocortisone. Um, so I think, like you said, <laughs> it's 
it aligns with what people are doing. Like if someone still has been resuscitated appropriately, is on pressors, then maybe consider using steroids. Um, but I really do hope that we have some more information about like, okay, when, instead of just a remark saying, maybe if they're still on this amount after four hours. Yeah, just just vague enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now one of the things that I really like about the, specifically the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines is they, they try to be all inclusive and like contain recommendations for honestly, almost any treatments you could possibly consider for patients with sepsis and septic shock. And, you know, they even have a specific ARDS section and it was a little bit of an eye raising recommendation as it relates to, to neuromuscular blockade here. So Brittany, were you as surprised as, as I was when I, when I looked at this recommendation? Uh, I definitely had to read this one twice. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think you made a great point in kind of bringing forth this question regarding how extensive these guidelines are. I don't know how many people listening have sat on a guideline or done methodology for a guideline. I know I've sat on one and we had five PICO questions and it took us like a year. So I cannot imagine the amount of work that is placed into these guidelines, which I don't know if we've really touched on, but it is really quite astounding at what they're able to cover in a single document. So definitely agree there. Um, in regards to the neuromuscular blocking agents, I was I was pretty surprised to see the specificity of, of the recommendation, which was for patients with sepsis-induced moderate to severe ARDS, we suggest using intermittent neuromuscular blockade uh, boluses over neuromuscular blockers. Now, for me, and, and like working through the rationale, I really think this predominantly arises from the ROSE trial, um, which was published um, in between the guidelines. Um, as we know it. And specifically, they had recommended before a weak recommendation to use neuromuscular blockade for 48 hours um, in the same population on the basis of, of evidence at that time. So since then, we've seen the ROSE trial published that really didn't show the improvement in outcomes for ARDS as we had previously thought to, to occur with neuromuscular blockade. Now, the interesting part is specifically, when I read this, when I see like, a suggestion towards neuromuscular intermittent neuromuscular blockade, that's not a recommendation against neuromuscular blockade for me. Like I'm reading that mm -hmm. th thinking they're supporting the use of inter intermittent neuromuscular blockers, which hasn't been performed in a large randomized control trial. We don't have any trials that have looked at, okay, the use of intermittent neuromuscular blockers versus placebo or the use of intermittent neuromuscular blockers versus continuous infusion. Now, I think where they're getting this from is really on the basis of that ROSE trial, which if you dig into the weeds of the ROSE trial in the placebo group, they did have in their protocol a potential option for intermittent neuromuscular blockers as, a, you know, as per the um, primary care team. So if you dig into the weeds of the ROSE study in the control group, about 17% of the population, which I think is still a pretty small number, 17% of that population within the control group received intermittent neuromuscular blockers. So they're really pulling from that study, which showed in the control group versus continuous infusion, you didn't see a difference. But it's still, again, it's based on like the protocol that allowed for open label use of something, not necessarily a comparative study. And I think the interesting part about that 
is really their protocol called for cystaturian boluses, which I don't know about <laughs> anyone else on this, but no, I've yet to give one. I've yet to have any position wait for, um, you know, a cystaturian bolus to arrive to the unit when they can pull rock or, or sucks out. So, and they didn't, they didn't use any of it actually in the, their protocol. Despite the fact that it called cystaturian, anyone that received open label um, pushes of neuromuscular blockade was not cystaturian. So I just think it's interesting. I read it as a suggestion towards something that I feel like doesn't have great data at all. I would have, I would have, I felt like I would have more likely seen this say we suggest against the use of neuromuscular blockers before I would see suggest using intermittent. And just again, weak recommendation, moderate quality of evidence, but it was definitely something that I, I had to read twice when, when I first saw it for sure. Do you think what everyone has been doing for COVID kind of like bled into these recommendations a bit? With all of our drug shortages, I feel like we've been using a lot more intermittent just because that's like what we're stuck with. Definitely. I mean, in my opinion, yeah, we had to develop backup protocols in the COVID era. But then I, I look back to the author guideline and you don't have a lot of clinical pharmacists that were on the ground developing this, this guideline. So it's just, I think maybe it kind of plays with that theme of this is what we've been doing and we'll continue to do. It's just so... It's just so odd to me because that's really like an operational pharmacy. We we encountered shortages. We developed an operational backup plan. And I, you know, I can't see this group feeling super strongly about that on the basis of drug shortages. I might be wrong. I might be making assumptions that are just completely undue, but um, definitely, definitely interesting for sure. Yeah, kind of a strange application um, from from that trial data to, to how it appears in the guidelines here. Um, now you you both have probably touched on on one or a couple of these throughout the pod today, but do you have like a major hope or hopes for future updates to these guidelines? So, kind of, Carol, let's start with you. What's your what's your pie in the sky for some of these future updates? Yeah, I think I touched on some of mine throughout, but I think just more guidance on when to do things, um, and then more specifically with vasopressors. Um, some head-to-head comparisons of second-line vasopressors instead of just kind of basing it on a theory of, you know, our alpha-1 receptors being saturated and using um, non-catecholine vasopressors to be vasopressor-sparing. And then more guidance on, okay, if beta is going to be our second one, when do we add it? Do we add it when they're less than 15, like this subgroup of Vanish, or do we add it at... 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. So I think that's an area for future research. Like when should we be adding vasopressin? And then same with steroids. When should we be adding it? Should we be following these remarks that they provided? Um, or is, will we have more data to go off of in the future? Brittany, what about you? So, I, oh my goodness, so many. Um, <laughs> I I disagree with Carolyn just in a little bit. So the one place for me, and maybe it's because I'm just so like tuned into this fluid component and I just don't <laughs> necessarily agree. I think there are, there are areas that don't necessarily have to be so prescriptive, especially on the basis of this is best practice, right? Like this is based on the experience of the clinicians writing guidelines. I think they do have some room 
to be a little less prescriptive, especially when it comes to fluids, like the specific dose is recommended, the very specific times that are recommended, only because you do see consequence of this, right? When you have such prescriptive measures, you see mandates come through and you see people really start relying heavily on these, which doesn't always align with the amount of data to support those. So I think that's one area is really becoming more aggressive in regards to specificity where the data lies and not necessarily being so prescriptive in places that there aren't a lot of data to support that. I think, um, again, I already mentioned before, continued diversification, continued consideration for low resource settings. I think another big area for me, which I would really like to see evolve is personalization um, of sepsis treatment and precision medicine. I think we have a lot of research to do in these areas, but I think our biggest issue with sepsis just across the board is it's a heterogeneous syndrome that continues to be treated in a one-size-fits-all approach, which they've gotten there, right, in some of these discussions of consideration for MDR risk factors and, and, and so forth. But I think really across the board, so many of the therapies with sepsis are probably person-dependent, looking at baseline immune function, how what is the immune response, what is the, you know, pathogen in which patients um, are is, is inciting sepsis. There are so many other considerations that likely impact sepsis and outcomes of sepsis that we haven't really honed in and we haven't really thought through when we talk about how we allocate patients to treatment and how we consider that. So I think definitely a lot of research to be done and future applications there in my mind that I, I would love to see more research funding spent on it and more time spent too um, from a guidance standpoint. Well, we're going to have to keep our eyes and ears peeled for those. And if this pod is still a thing in five years, we'll bring you both back on and we'll see how we feel about our about our future updates here. Um, now, before before we close out the episode today, I, I want to highlight an article that Brittany was the first author on and was titled Gender Equ- Inequity and Sexual Harassment in the Pharmacy Profession evidence and call to action. So it's a, it's a free, you, you don't have to be an AJHP um, or ASHP member. Um, it's an article in the November 2021 edition of AJHP. And it's, it's something that um, on the pod on previous episodes, it's uh, we've, we've broached and, and mentioned a little bit, but um, Brittany kind of bring some of the, the listeners in here, you know, you're leading in an, in an incredible group of, of women and, and leaders in the pharmacy profession. So what, um, and it can be general, but what led to the creation and, and publishing of this, of this paper here? Um, well, I think a small group of women were just ready for change. Um, you know, there are a lot of, unwritten rules and you know society in itself functions with a lot of just unwritten standards that you know women accept and I think from a pharmacy profession specifically the group of us we were just ready to make a change I think it was it was time um to kind of move forward and and push the envelope I think 2020 was your reckoning for a lot of people on a lot of different social matters so I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that played into it so Definitely multifactorial, but I think just the bravery of, of some of my co-authors um, and willingness to kind of speak up. I think just it was time we were ready. So, so what progress would you say has been made? And and obviously, I, I I can answer. I know we're not at the finish line. You know, how much further do we kind of still have to go to to try to level the playing field here? As um, to 
as you kind of discuss the differences there? Yeah, you know, I do have to commend multiple national organizations have really started to take stances on this. Society of Critical Care Medicine um, has definitely made some progress from like a harassment and discrimination standpoint across the board. Um, in my opinion, American College of Clinical Pharmacy has done some great work. Um, you know, APHA has started to, to do some things there. So definitely organizations taking a stance, which is as simple as something as, you know, having an expectation for volunteers and organizational members and having them attest to certain behavioral standards, which sounds really silly, but was something that didn't exist before. And it can actually have a lot of impact on the back end of things when, you know, these standards aren't met. So definitely some progress has been made, I think, from an organizational standpoint. Um, you know, some bylaws were just approved by ASHP and, 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 and um, House of Delegates, um, APHA, uh, probably a couple of months ago now. So definitely, definitely progress. Of course, I think it's important to keep momentum for all of these things. I think, you know, the diversity, the aspects too are still really important. So we've had a lot of discussions about gender inequity, but I think there's continued discussion that has to be, to be made about some of the, the issues of intersectionality. So we talk about specifically about race, um, our LGBTQ population and, and how that plays into some of the, these ongoing issues with harassment or inequity. I think, again, important to continue to the discussion, still not there. You know, everyone um, is relying on these organizations, but everyone has different personal experiences. So a lot of work still to be made. Definitely some organizations stepping up, though, which I've really appreciated um, and, and respected greatly. I think this is such an important topic. And Brittany, just thank you so much for getting this conversation started and, and for holding these organizations accountable. I think, you know, people like you can, can really drive change when it comes to these issues. Thank you, but I couldn't have done it without my co-authors, so everyone go check them out. It's a huge list, can't name them all, but seriously, it's such a great group of, of co-authors, and it's definitely been an honor to work with them, for sure. So thank you. Yeah, you mentioned the word bravery. That's what stands out to me. Um, you know, there's um, been a lot of um, kind of peeling back what actually happens um, for you both as women, right? I'm, I'm a man, so I it, it's I, a lot of times, you know, probably ignorant to a lot of these things. So not only educating us, but holding people accountable and things. So yeah, uh, kudos, well done. We'll definitely be sure that there's a, a link to this for those. So I, I encourage if you haven't seen or if this is news to you to please look at that. And the co-authors, I mean, you're exactly right. The The list is numerous. Um, tons of tons of friends of the pod, people who have come on the, the pod before. So um, definitely encourage all to, to look at that. And yeah, thanks, Brittany, again, to, to you and, and all of your co-authors here. So this episode's going to go live right around the Super Bowl. We need to check in here on our resident Chiefs fan. Carolyn, how are you doing? How are you feeling? We go from the most incredible win. I've maybe one of the most incredible wins, right? The, the game nicknamed 13 seconds to a pretty tough loss. So how are we doing? Oh, man, the highs and lows of being a sports fan. I mean, that Chiefs-Bills game was probably the best football game I've ever seen. Like. Mm -hmm. 25 points scored in the last like minute and 54 seconds. That's crazy. And that's why, you know, sports are so fun to watch. Um, and then, you know, that game against the Bengals, we just didn't play well in the second half. So we have no one to blame but ourselves. So yeah, that was, uh, I'm still emotionally recovering. <laughs> are you, so are you rooting for anybody in, in the Super Bowl itself? I 
think I'm going to pull for the Bengals because, and you know, that might be hard to believe. You know, as a Chiefs fan, you know, they beat us, but I'm I'm a sucker for an underdog story, and that's how the Chiefs were before. You know, a couple of years ago when we won the Super Bowl, that was like my first time seeing a playoff win in my lifetime, and so maybe the Bengals will have the opportunity to do that as well. Well, I think there's kind of two mindsets. If your team loses, right, you either scorch earth, you want the team to the team that beats you next week to get pummeled by a hundred, or you hope they win it all to be like, well, we would have won if we didn't play this team. So I, I support that. I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for Joe Burrow as well. Cigar and all. I think, you know, they're LA. They have enough out there on the West coast. Let's come on. We got to get some Midwest, some love here. Give Cincinnati something to root for. <laughs> so, Brittany, will you will you be watching at all? Are you are, are you uh, going to be doing anything for the Super Bowl? So, little known fact: I grew up in a one stoplight town, about fifteen minutes south of Athens, Ohio. Um, so, and I, I grew up in a Bengals household. So, you know, those two facts alone. If I don't watch Super Bowl and I don't cheer for Joe, I may not be allowed back in the county. So I will definitely be watching who day all the way. We've got to, got to support. So, um, I I work this weekend, but I'll, I'll definitely make it home in time, time to cheer on the Bengals for sure. There we go. We're united in our support for the underdog. For those who know me, I could literally talk about this all day. I will spare all of us. Um, thank you both for, for joining me. I, I always learn so much whenever, whenever, um, uh, we I hear any either of you talk or, or read any of your articles, and today is certainly no exception. Um, so remember, find them on Twitter. Uh, Brittany, it's at Bissell Brittany, and then Carolyn is at C McGee Farm D. So uh, Brittany and Carolyn, uh, thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy day. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having us. Now, another big uh, thank you to the friends of the pod. Always appreciate the support. Um, Remember, apply to be a guest host for a literature review series episode in 2022. So submit just a small form. I promise it's easy. And email a 60 to 90 second clip just saying why you want to be on the pod. The the link is pinned on my Twitter page at Pharmacy to Dose, T-O to Dose. Remember, uh, there will be a reference list available to talk about some of the studies and things that we detailed here. Um, Reach out with suggestions. Uh, via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.